Welcome to Gravity, a podcast on the environment and human rights issues from the local to the global. The Dakota Access Pipeline is a 1,168-mile or 1,880-kilometre pipeline that will carry 570,000 barrels of crude oil daily from North Dakota to Illinois. The one remaining section to be completed is the crossing at Lake Oahe, the confluence of the Missouri and Cannonball Rivers, a place of great spiritual and cultural significance to the tribes of the Great Sioux Nation. The original crossing was rerouted by the Army Corps, which provides permits for construction over navigable waters, including the Missouri River, due to the risk of an oil spill threatening the water source of North Dakota's capital city, Bismarck. However, the current route is directly upstream from and threatens the water source of the Standing Rock Sioux, the Cheyenne River Sioux, and the Yankton Sioux tribes. It also threatens the water of up to 17 million people downstream. On July 27, 2016, the Standing Rock Tribe sued the Army Corps for declaratory and injunctive relief, as well as preliminary injunctive relief, to prevent the Corps from providing a permit to construct the pipeline across Lake Oahe, claiming violations of the Clean Water Act, the Rivers and Harbors Act, the National Historic Preservation Act, and the National Environmental Policy Act, citing failure to conduct a proper environmental impact assessment of the entire pipeline, including a thorough archaeological assessment of affected sites, and for failure to adequately inform and consult with the tribe. On September 9, 2016, the court denied the request for a preliminary injunction, holding that the tribe had failed to show that irreparable injury would result if the injunction were not granted. On that same day, a pipeline in Alabama spilled 336,000 gallons of gasoline. On December 5, 180,000 gallons spilled into a creek just 150 miles from Sacred Stones Camp at Standing Rock. Numerous more spills have occurred this year alone across the country. The pipeline cannot be understood apart from the historical, physical and cultural genocide of the American Indigenous peoples. Indigenous peoples across the world have come together at sacred stones to peacefully protest its construction. Water protectors from around the world have also come. They have faced police violence and intimidation. The Standing Rock Sioux, the Cheyenne River Sioux and the Yankton Sioux tribes petitioned the Inter-American Commission on Human Rights for precautionary measures on December 2, 2016, citing egregious violations of their rights, including their rights to free speech and peaceful assembly. While the Army Corps issued a stay and agreed to do a comprehensive environmental impact assessment on December 4, concern remains that the new Trump administration may allow construction before a thorough assessment may be completed. On December 12, 2016, I met with Martin Wagner, who represents the tribes in the petition to the Inter-American Commission here in San Francisco. Martin is the Managing Attorney at Earth Justice and Director of its International Program. Welcome to Gravity, Martin. Thanks. It's good to be here. Friday, you were in D.C. to represent three tribes that were the remnants of the Grand Sioux Tribe. That's Um, right. They are three tribes that are parts of what was the Grand Sioux Nation. And there are other Sioux tribes as well still, but these are the three tribes that are actively opposing the Dakota Access Pipeline. And your petition was to the Inter-American Commission. That's right, the Inter-American Commission on Human Rights, which is part of the Organization of American States, which is sort of the United Nations for the Western Hemisphere. And the hearing was on December 9th. The hearing was on December 9th, although the hearing was not explicitly about that petition. There are some um, complications about the way the commission works. The commission can't hold a hearing on a specific situation if it doesn't have an active case in front of it about that situation. 
And um, at the time when we asked for the hearing, there was not an active case going on. And so the commission does have a provision that allows it to hold hearings, general thematic hearings on right. thematic issues. So we asked for a hearing on the issue of the situation of indigenous peoples with respect to infrastructure projects in the United States and proposed to use the situation of the Dakota Access Pipeline as an example of what's going on here. So this was this general thematic hearing um, in the interim between being granted the hearing and, and the hearing happening last Friday, we did submit a petition for what are called precautionary measures from the commission, which is sort of an emergency request from the commission to call on the United States to take action to protect the human rights of, of the tribes. Um, even then, though, that is not tied yet to a case. There is not a formal case yet on, on behalf of the tribes. We're working on putting that together. Um, but this pre precautionary measures request is something that the commission is allowed to consider even before it has a case before it. Okay, so let's backtrack a bit. Let's talk a bit about the background of the Dakota Access Pipeline, why it's being built, its purpose, and environmental impact. Right. So the Dakota Access Pipeline is a over 1,000 mile long pipeline that is intended to transport oil from the Bakken oil fields in North Dakota down over a thousand miles south to refineries. Um, it is was proposed to be built because this area, the Bakken oil field, is an area that has seen a huge, huge explosion in oil production in the past several years. And um, so they're all, there's all this oil that needs to get to refineries. So a few years ago, this company, um, Dakota Access, proposed to construct this pipeline that would go, that would carry the oil. And, and it's a subsidiary of Texas Energy. It's a subsidiary of Energy Transfer Partners, which is a subsidiary, I'm sure, of other companies. I haven't tracked it all back. So they began the process of proposing the pipeline and getting all the necessary permits. And there are a lot of different permits they need. They, of course, need state permits for each state that they pass through. And then when they pass through federal lands, they need federal permits. And the way, when they pass across federal waters, they need different permits there. Um, and so they developed a plan um, and began the process of getting all the approvals. One of the early proposals was a plan that would take the pipeline across the Missouri River, which is one of the larger water bodies that the pipeline would cross, a little ways upstream from the city of Bismarck, North Dakota. And um, in considering that option, the people of Bismarck objected that a spill from this pipeline and oil pipelines leak and spill all the time. So there was concern that a spill from this pipeline would contaminate the water of Bismarck. And in fact, the different authorities that looked at the proposal agreed that this was a, quote, high consequence area, meaning that there would be a significant impact to drinking water resources if the pipeline leaked. So the company proposed a different route, and that route would take the pipeline across the Missouri River 
immediately upstream from the, the drinking water intake for the Standing Rock Sioux tribe and upstream of drinking water sources for the other two tribes, the Cheyenne River Sioux tribe and the Yankton Sioux tribe that are all opposing the pipeline. So it was deemed too dangerous to be within Bismarck's water source, but not too dangerous to be within the three tribal water sources. Exactly. And that's a classic example of what we see all throughout the United States and elsewhere in the world and what we call environmental racism and environmental injustice, where um, poor and, and other disempowered people have environmentally risky and, and, and unsafe for human uh, exposure projects cited near them as opposed to being cited in wealthier, white, generally white areas. And one of the, if you read the literature out there that's, um, and yes, I use quotation marks, but nobody <laughs> can, can see that I did that. And that's because uh, it, it's just such a travesty that uh, the argument posed is, well, you know, there's already a pipeline. What are they complaining about? There's already the northern border pipeline. But in fact, when the northern border pipeline was put there, the the tribal leaders did not have the authority, I believe, to claim any right to not have the pipeline constructed because the current legal battle that is happening right now, those rights were uh, provided to the tribal authorities after the Northern Border Pipeline. Well, I think I think what this highlights is a, a more general problem in consultation with Indigenous people, with Indian tribes in the United States. Um, you know, both U.S. law and international law requires consultation and what's called free, prior, and informed consent from indigenous peoples when infrastructure projects go through their territory and and are going to affect their interests. And um, we have seen consistently in this project, as we've seen elsewhere, that that consultation is extremely flawed, even if it happens at all. Um, so these pipelines are are both an example of that. And, and I guess the other thing I would add is um, just because you have one risky project, does that mean that you should you should double or, or more your risk by adding an, another project? Exactly. It's an absurd it's an absurd argument and it completely ignores the the sovereignty of the tribes to decide what they will and won't accept on their territory. And adds insult to injury because they did not uh, accept the northern border pipeline in the first place. They just didn't have legal recourse, That's exactly uh, unfortunately. Right. And, uh, and, and you're right, just now they're putting another pipeline in, so they're increasing the risk of spillage. And I believe that the company uh, that's... Um, Constructing the pipeline is actually known for being. I, th- I think you're referring to the company that will be operating the pipeline, which oh. is Sunoco. Yeah. Um, and they have the pipelines that they operate in the past. I'm not. I don't remember exactly the number, but maybe it's since 2010. Um, have had more spills than any of their other competitors. All pipelines have leaks and spills, and and you can look at the history, even the very, very recent history of pipelines in the last few years in the United States, and, and we see every, you know, every month, every few weeks, we see another spill, and often into waters that are, well, all waters in the U.S. are important to, to some resource, whether it's human or, or other species, but but often it's into water we use for our drinking water, and it's it's really dangerous to have these 
spills and and we can't just continue to have these spills and and one of the things that maybe the most important thing these tribes are saying is not just that their water is important but all water is sacred water is the most fundamental thing on our planet that allows us and everything we depend on and everything we're in relationship with on this planet to survive and so we have to be more thoughtful about our relationship to the water that that we depend on and that's what these tribes are are reminding us of right without water we don't have anything and i think the what's the point of free speech if <laughs> we don't have water uh, but the and, and that's why there are water protectors right now at sacred stones camp but uh, particularly with indigenous people the the environment is so intrinsic to their culture so it, we have a violation of uh, their in, environmental rights but also their cultural rights because this intrinsically linked is that correct? that's exactly right um, the there are there are many rights involved here and probably the most important to the tribes are their cultural rights they're as as you say um, most indigenous peoples live in extremely close relationship to the land that they live on the territory that they have historically been connected to and, um, and have a very active relationship culturally and spiritually with the land and with everything that makes up the land, the animals and the plants and the waters and the, and the stones and the soil. And, um, and they have historically developed these relationships and maintained these relationships. And they're, um, they're the source of their culture and spirituality is tied to that. And so when you say... Um, well, maybe it's not going to be such a such a harm. Maybe there's only a small risk of oil spills, which is probably not true in the first place. But um, that ignores the cultural connection. Right. And it's one of the reasons it's extremely important to have deep tribal consultation before you undertake a project like this, because it, we need to understand the cultural relationship to the land. So there's a great example in this situation, in this, in the case of this project, of the the many cultural sites that have already been destroyed by the company constructing the other parts of the pipeline, up uh, everything other than the crossing at the Missouri River, which is essentially all that remains to be completed, where the company brought in private archaeologists to do a survey of cultural sites that might be affected by the pipeline. And there are a number of instances where after those surveys were done with the archaeologists finding in many instances few to none to no cultural sites, the tribal uh, historic preservation or cultural preservation officers would go through and they could point out sites that these archaeologists had missed because the archaeologists didn't understand the culture of the tribes. So they didn't even know what to look for. Right. And I believe when, unfortunately, the uh, preliminary injunction was denied uh, in that right... So that was, I believe, September 9th, that um, 
after there was an incident where Dakota, and, and it was denied because uh, w- one of the reasons was that the justice said, okay, well, it's in their policy that uh, if they find a site that they you know, weren't expecting, they have to stop and then they you know, have to get the archaeologists there. And so, so there's actually no possibility of anything occurring. But what actually happened was they found an unexpected site and then just destroyed it. Well, it was actually, if I'm thinking of the same situation, it was in a way worse. It was before the injunction was denied. It was before the judge ruled on it. But it was after the filings had been made in court that identified some sites that were at risk. And the, and the company went ahead after that filing was made and did the construction through that area, harming those sites. Now, I have no evidence that the company, you know, did the comparison and said, uh-oh, these sites have been identified. We'd better rush through and, and you know, destroy them before the right. court tells us we can't. It could well be that they were just moving moving ahead. But what what's obvious is, one, there were sites that were known and nobody, the government or the company, took the steps to, to, to know that they were there to make sure that they weren't harmed and that the, the court didn't stop it before it happened. And the other issue is that the company's own supposed environmental impact assessment and archaeological assessment, that they use people that were not part of the tribe. It isn't the tribe the best authority as to what is sacred to their own culture instead of third-party archaeologists? That's exactly um, right. It's insulting to think that uh, these third-party archaeologists know as much as the tribal leaders. And as you said, it's the whole context of imperialist history uh, from the beginning, the treaty abrogations and, and the fact that there were treaties in the first place because <laughs> they were here first. Um, and now the, the Grand Sioux tribe, they said that you know ancestrally the lands were theirs where the buffalo roamed. But again, and I refer back to the decision that denied the preliminary injunctions, the justice said, well, saying that, you know, ancestrally your land was where the buffalo roamed, that, I mean, that could be anything. What is that? There's no legal, it's not a legal definition. But again, we're not understanding their culture because, yes, it is in their culture that is what define their land, where the buffalo roamed, just because we have a different conception. Um, and, And I think that's instrumentally the problem that, you know, we have two systems that don't align and we've never really accepted uh, what's sacred to them in in our system. They have to fit and compartmentalize into what we accept as legitimate. Right. And and I think your point is maybe even more subtle that... we, we make, everyone, every human being does this. We make assumptions that the world, that everyone else's view of the world is the same as our view of the world. So even a well-meaning archaeologist or well-meaning government official going through on her or his own to say, here, you know, I, I want to make sure there are no sacred sites here. They're not going to know what to look for. So some of the sites um, are sites where stones have been placed as a, um, a boundary for prayer sites for leaders and, and others in, in the tribes. And some of these are very, very ancient and show apparently signs that they've been used for centuries or maybe even millennia as prayer sites. And others of them um, indicate that 
powerful leaders, whether spiritual or, or political leaders, are buried in those sites. Um, and some of the sites, even, it, it's quite remarkable. When you look at the stones, like if I were to walk through, I would never notice this. But if you then know to look and pay attention to the stones that are there and to map them out, they map perfectly constellations in the sky. They match the constellations. And so you or I probably would walk through and we would not even notice the stones at all. And yet if you're a tribal member, you walk through and you know that this is what you're looking for. You know that it's what it represents. You know that it's a sacred site. It's a little bit like one of them walking through, you know, the the a cathedral somewhere, a Christian cathedral, and saying, oh, I don't see any stones on the ground in the shape of, of constellations, so this can't be important. We'll just okay. put a pipeline right through the middle of it, you know? Right. We just keep adding insult to injury. We don't have time to get into the whole Stygian imperialist record here, but let's just let's just briefly go over this. The Great Sioux Nation, or the Seven Council Fires, comprised the states of North and South Dakota, Montana, Wyoming, and Nebraska. In the mid-1800s, they entered into several treaties with the United States to limit their lands in order to be able to retain undisturbed and absolute occupation of the land they retained. However, subsequently, and very quickly, the United States abrogated these treaties, it decreased the land and divided it into nine reservations, including Standing Rock, and it took the most productive parts, including Black Hills. In 1980, the Supreme Court agreed that this land was unjustly taken and provided damages. These damages continue to be held by the Bureau of Indian Affairs and accrue interest as the tribes have refused to accept a settlement which would legitimize the unjust taking of their land. Now, another insult to injury is the current state of Lake Oahe, Lake Oahe is at the confluence of the Missouri and Cannibal Rivers. It's one of the most sacred places of the Great Sioux Nation. It was a place of prayer, a place of peace, where enemies could come, meet, confer, and trade without fear of violence. Currently, Lake Oahe has a pipeline underneath it and was dammed. This sacred area was dammed. And I'm using damned in maybe the metaphorical as well as the literal context here. But uh, it, it just seems that we're just piling on injury after injury. Well, you know, we damn this, we put another pipeline in. So what are you complaining about? We already ruined everything. I mean, that's what I'm hearing. Uh, in there, um, there is some of that. I mean, the, the damn situation, you're absolutely right to point to that. And it's an example of a kind of infrastructure project that is particularly harmful to indigenous peoples all around the world. There are people fighting dams on probably every continent on the planet right now. And in this situation, part of the traditional territory was taken away from the the different Sioux tribes when the dam was constructed. And um, some of the leaders talk, well, all of the leaders talk about how they lost some of the most productive uh, land because, of course, that river bottom land is the most productive for farming and, and other agriculture. And so um, they have already lost this important land. And then, as you, as you note, it's also culturally important. And then the site where the pipeline is crossing is right near where another very sacred site where one of the most sacred dances of the Sioux tribe, the Sundance, is sometimes performed. So they're... Um, there are huge impacts culturally from this project. Some may argue that it's in, in essence genocidal because uh, the the intrinsic value to the... What, what is left of Indigenous culture? What is left but these sacred sites that they can refer back to to teach their youth about their culture and to 
to have some semblance of what um, their life used to be. That, that's exactly right. And there is a term that is used called cultural genocide, which I think reflects, again, the, um, the difference between a lot of indigenous cultures and the European cultures, where we don't tend to think so much about our cultures being tied to place and to relationship to land. And we think, well, if you don't kill all the people, the culture will continue. I think we might ask ourselves the question of what we've done to our own cultures by deracinating ourselves the way we tend to have, especially in the United States with our you know, immigration here and then moving across the country. Um, but but for indigenous peoples, if you destroy the land that their culture depends on, where their sacred sites are, where their traditional practices, which are very deeply tied to their culture, you know, you pass your culture and your and your spiritual traditions and understandings on to your children in the context of hunting and fishing and gathering and how you do that, when you lose the ability to do that, then you begin to lose some elements of your culture that are really essential. I'm here making a lot of statements about what the interests of the tribe are and what indigenous interests are and the importance of, of indigenous culture, etc. And, and I hope I get it right. It's my intention to get it right. But I am not an indigenous person. And, and there's a risk that by having this conversation, by me being the one to speak here, that I'm doing exactly what is being criticized rightly in this whole process, which is I don't understand the culture the way an indigenous person would. So I just want to acknowledge that, that in the ways in which I'm reflecting the interests of the tribes here, I'm doing my best, but it would be far better to have a tribal member right here speaking to those issues. And so I want, I want to acknowledge that and acknowledge that if I've made mistakes, it's because I don't understand. Thank you, Martin, for acknowledging that. You're right. It's always best to go directly to the source and not merely the put parole, particularly when there's such cultural sensitivity involved. I welcome any representative of the tribes to come on Gravity. Please do. Now, um, let's go back to the environmental impact because the environmental impact, and, and we've discussed that it's hard to differentiate. These are the culture, This is the cultural impact and this is the environmental impact because in Indigenous culture, the environmental impact is so intrinsic to uh, the, um, the cultural significance. But uh, the, the, the environmental impact is not just impacting the tribes. Uh, for instance, impacting of the freshwater, it, it goes downstream. It impacts up to, I believe, 17 million people. And, uh, and likewise, I suppose that the environmental impact uh, is to the land, the flora and the fauna is also much wider than the territories. That's right. Um, these tribes are, uh, as I referred to before, these tribes are reminding us of something that we seem to have lost sight of, which is that all of us, not just the tribes, depend on a healthy environment for everything that we are, for our for our water that we're, that is required for us to live, for our clean air, for our food, and for our emotional and, and spiritual connections and, and health. And so what they're saying is they are on the, on the front end, the front line right now of this, but they're not the only ones even with respect to this project. And all around the world, we have indigenous peoples reminding us of this, the, of, of our 
deep connection to the environment and the need to protect the environment, even just from the per- per- perspective of protecting ourselves. Right. It's, maybe it seems that in this age with technology everywhere and searching for other planets that we think that we can somehow escape this planet and, you know, treat it as if we're just leasing it and then we'll go off on our own. But really, I mean, the probability of that is so small. So if we're just looking after our own selfish interests, we have to look after our very, very vulnerable water sources. It's not renewable. We can't just wait for the rains, which some in some places just don't come as well. Right. But uh, most fresh water is not a renewable resource. It's 2.5% of all the water in the world. And I think that's something that you know, needs needs to be in the front lines needs to be uh, acknowledged, and <laughs> uh, I, I don't even. It's just uh, ineffably unfortunate that the new administration that is set to take <clears throat> office is instituting people in regulatory positions that don't believe in regulations that don't believe in climate change, <laughs> right. and uh, are all for this pipeline. Right. Well, you know, we, we could go a long ways down that path. But, yeah. <laughs> but, but one thing that I am reminded of when you say that is when Donald Trump was campaigning and he was here in California and he was, you know, promising that he would solve all of the water problems. And he made this just absurd statement that, of course, there is no real water shortage here because we have all this water that we're just letting go out into the ocean. We're just wasting it. Right. And and th- that reflects an an absolute ignorance of the relationship between the water and the environment and the relationship between the environment and us. So all of that water that we in our real wisdom have said we need to allow to continue to flow in the rivers is allowing the rivers to thrive and all the parts of the rivers to thrive, which in turn allows everything that we depend on to thrive. So there is exactly as you say, an ignorance of the relationship between the environment and our health and our actions and the environment's health. But thankfully, there are people that are fighting this in, in the court system, in the media, and uh, with their flesh and bones up in the Sacred Stones camp. And that's another violation um, that we should discuss, the uh, violations to free speech and uh, f- peaceful assembly. So uh, we know that in the past three decades, police militarization has been shocking. And, it, and really, the uh, police brutality against protesters there, it has been extremely intense. I believe that one protester said, it's as if they got all these toys and they're just trying them out. All these so-called less than lethal or non-lethal weapons. It has been remarkable and, and uh, not in a good way. <laughs> So uh, this this protest by the tribes has inspired people all over the country and all around the world. Um, And many of those people have gone to the area just north of the Standing Rock Reservation um, to gather with members of the three tribes who are protesting, as well as many, many other indigenous peoples and non-indigenous peoples to pray and to peacefully protest the construction of the pipeline. Um, Those protests and prayers have overwhelmingly been completely peaceful. And despite that, the local and so city and county and state 
uh, police agencies as well as private security agencies have been extremely violent in the in the oppression and and um, repression of this peaceful demonstration. So at one point, uh, just to cite a few examples, private security guards came in with attack dogs and actually attacked people. There are people who were bitten by these dogs who were peacefully protesting. Um, in one of the really, I think, most callous examples, uh, at night last month, when the temperatures were well below freezing, the police agencies brought in water cannons and sprayed consistently and continually over the course of hours the people who were demonstrating peacefully and, and praying peacefully. Even there are um, reports of witnesses to elderly women who were kneeling in prayer on the ground and had these water cannons sprayed at them. And they were sprayed long enough in these temperatures that eventually the people being sprayed had frozen ice, had ice on their bodies at, at, in these conditions where people could die from hypothermia. And then when people would go in and try to protect those people to cover them up, they would be sprayed or even shot with um, rubber bullets or beanbags or tear gas canisters or these concussion grenades that can cause deafness. Um, so, yeah, it's, it's really extreme. And it's remarkable to see how um, I think this is another example of racism in our country, how these protesters being overwhelmingly peaceful, were treated uh, with this violence when other protests, such as the Bundys up in Oregon, who were acting with threats of violence, did have weapons, were treated really with kid gloves. All right, and, and not given <laughs> prison sentences. Exactly. <laughs> um, now, in your petition, you list all the various injuries and uh, it, there are there are hundreds of people that were severely injured. Uh, it appears that one protester might lose her arm, uh, and one protester might lose uh, their sight in one eye. I mean, th these are uh, very extreme injuries. These weapons, uh, and and we had a, an episode dedicated to the use of uh, non-lethal weapons or less than lethal weapons, but really they they cause fatalities and they cause very permanent injuries. Uh, and the fact that the police are using these that, that aren't trained in these weapons, it, it's just, it's appalling. And, and the federal government, how have they been responding? It seems they've been quite complicit in this. Right. Well, the, the federal government says that it's monitoring the situation. Um, and uh, I think from an from a international human rights perspective, the federal government has absolutely not met its obligations. Under international law, the, the United States government is responsible for anything that happens, any of the subsidiary governments, the state or local governments, anything they do is the responsibility of the United States from an international law perspective. And so human rights law would say that the United States needs to step in and guarantee the safety of these peaceful protesters, also needs to guarantee the safety of the, of the police as well. But there isn't a threat in this situation to the police. So there really is no excuse for this violent um, way of, of, of dealing with these protesters. I believe that one reason there is so much violence is to suppress 
protests, to punish people for protesting, for dissent, for resisting these projects. I believe that part of the reason we are seeing such violence is that it is um, an effective way of intimidating people, or so they believe, except uh, to a certain extent, a lot of people have are fed up and uh, they don't want to accept this intimidation. But we can see not only is there violence against protesters as part of this intimidation uh, tactic, but um, threats to the media. So Amy Goodman was arrested Mm -hmm. uh, and she was charged really with criminal trespass and then with uh, riot charges and um, that was dropped. But uh, then there are still charges facing, and I'm not sure if I'm pronouncing her name correctly, Dea Schlossenberg, and she's a um, documentary filmmaker. You uh, briefly mentioned that in your petition. Um, could you explain a little bit more? It's a classic use of, of military and legal force to suppress um, dissent and opposition and, and to prevent others from knowing about what's going on. So you're right, they're using the power of the state to threaten these people, to um, to threaten them with extreme jail sentences for peaceful activities, for activities that are protected both under the US Constitution and under international law, freedom of expression, freedom of the press and media, which is so important to our, you know, our democracy. Um, I, I think what we're seeing here is a reaction to the fear that the non-Indigenous, mostly white community feels when Indigenous peoples demonstrate their power in this way, their ability to stand up for what they believe and to put themselves in the path of this project that threatens them and their culture. Um, And so I think that's very threatening to the dominant culture in our society. And so these overreactions are not, from one perspective, really overreactions at all. There is in their minds a very real threat here. It's the threat that these people may have more power than they're willing to give them. And really, there is strength in standing up. You know, when we look over history, when people have come together to stand for a purpose, they have invariably one, because there is strength in numbers. I mean, unfortunately, to to do this, they have to survive uh, through such brutality. But we've seen time and again, for instance, uh, in Cochabamba, when Bechtel came in, the people rose up and Bechtel had to leave with, you know, its tail between its legs. And hopefully the same thing will happen here because the water protectors are not leaving And I believe that the people at Sacred Stones are historically the largest uh, coming together of the various Indigenous communities around the world. And and they, you know, I guess it's the straw that broke the camel's back after so much that... um, That's true. And there are even tribes who have not been in communication for hundreds of years that have joined in solidarity because of this. I mean, so, so... so these people are, as, you, as we said earlier, inspiring people all around the world to stand up, um, to defend water and the environment and freedom of expression and indigenous cultures. So let's talk a bit about the hearing on Friday. The issue was indigenous communities in the context of extractive projects. Now, what is happening in the American system with respect to that? Well... 
the thing that was the one of the main focuses of the hearing was the problem around consultation. And we talked earlier about the problems that arose in this situation around consultation. The hearing focused on the situation of the Dakota Access Pipeline as an example of what happens throughout the Americas. We didn't talk about other situations in that case. But one of the things that I think was really significant, and it goes back to what we were just talking about with respect to the influence of what the tribes have done here and the impact of it, is that in this hearing, before this international institution, um, the U.S. government representatives who were there stated very clearly and openly that the United States has not done what it should have with respect to consultation, not just with respect to this pipeline, but with respect to infrastructure projects in indigenous territory throughout the United States. And one of the things they said was, by standing up in this situation, you have forced us to reevaluate our consultation processes. And we recognize that we have not met our obligations and we are committed to re-examining those, how we deal with consultation and to fixing the problem. Now, it's, you know, there's a completely legitimate argument that says this is way little, too little, way too late. You know, it's been hundreds of years of oppression and taking advantage of indigenous peoples in the United States. Um, but it is also true that it is significant that in an international institution, a government would stand up and say, we are not meeting our obligations. We need to do better. And I'm sure there are parts of the government that are not quite on board with that statement. But for those government officials, I believe that they believed it to be true. And I believe that there are agencies in the United States that if they were allowed to continue under the current administration, would go through a process and would improve their consultation processes. I don't know whether they would get them every to, to where I think they ought to be, but I do think they would make improvements. I think, unfortunately, they're not going to have the opportunity. I don't see a Trump administration following through on these plans. So let's talk a bit about this unfortunate inevitable. The Trump administration, both in its rhetoric and in its cabinet appointments, has shown it's quite hostile to the environment. Our president-elect may not even believe in climate change nor in its anthropogenic roots. So how does this impact the stay issued by the Army Corps in December 4? And I think it's probably best that we discuss the legal battle a little bit here. In July, the Standing Rock tribe sued the Army Corps of Engineers, which is charged with providing permits over navigable waters, including the Missouri River, for declaratory and injunctive relief in order to prevent the issuance of a permit to construct the pipeline underneath Lake Oahe. I believe the substance of their claim was that the Army Corps failed, as required by several statutes, to conduct a proper environmental impact assessment and adequately consult with the tribe. Right. So the, so the question is, um, in granting a permit to take the pipeline underneath the Missouri River at Lake Oahe, uh, whether the, the Army Corps did the assessments necessary, both under the National Environmental Policy Act, which requires environmental assessments, and under the National Historic Preservation Act, which requires evaluation and, and protection of cultural sites, um, whether those assessments were accurate in granting the permit. The, the Army Corps did an environmental assessment, um, really, as we described before, failed to consult 
adequately at all with the tribes and then on that basis granted the a permit one of the permits that was required uh, finding that there was no environmental or social impact that needed to be uh, taken into account so the tribes sued um, saying that that was inaccurate that the consultation process was poor and that in fact the environmental assessment didn't look at the right factors um, and sued for an injunction to stop the pipeline construction. The court didn't grant the injunction, but on the same day that the court denied the injunction, the federal government said, we're going to hold off on the final approval. There, was an, there is an easement that is also required for the pipeline to cross the, this federal land. Um, and the government said, we're going to look at the situation again. We believe we have not consulted adequately and we haven't taken into account the impacts adequately. That instead of doing just the, an environmental assessment, which is sort of the baseline finding about whether further study is necessary, that they're going to do a full environmental impact statement. Um, and so then they, they decided to hold off. And, and um, so that, and, and then, December 4th, a um, week and a half ago, they made a final de decision that they were not going to grant the easement until they had completed that environmental impact statement and full consultation with the tribes. Now, uh, a proper environmental impact assessment should take a year, two years, maybe three years to accomplish. Now, with the new administration coming in, what relief may, may there be for the tribes if the new administration comes in and just reverses this order? Well, the, the tribes will, will still be able to challenge the decision. Um, they, they, any, anything the administration now does, especially if it does it formally and on the record, is something that the tribes, that, that can't be overturned arbitrarily. Right. Um, and there's an argument that it would be uh, an arbitrary use of power to do that. Right. And, and there hasn't been a final, any final government action on this easement. So any final government action can then be challenged. And, and if the easement is granted, then in order to grant the easement, you need all, you need a, an adequate environmental assessment. And we believe in an environmental impact statement. So the tribes are preparing all of their legal arguments uh, to challenge uh, any action of the Trump administration, but it's, it remains to be seen what the Trump administration will do. Um, there are economic factors that come into play here too, because as the pipeline is delayed further, apparently that has implications for the contracts that the pipeline company has to, to ship the oil. And so a lot of things can change over time. Yeah. Right. And, and the company took the risk. They have to tell shareholders that, you know, they knew they needed this one, this clearance, this easement. And so it doesn't matter that 90% is completed. They shouldn't have constructed the 90% before they knew that this was a sure thing. I mean, it is actually quite reckless. And I believe they're losing, they, they say they're losing millions every day, millions, hundreds of millions, maybe. But the issue is, well, they took the risk that they wouldn't be granted this one little bit. And just because 90% is constructed doesn't mean, oh, well, well, you're losing money and therefore money is the most important. Thing. Unfortunately, it's a very common tactic in infrastructure projects and one that is 
unfortunately often successful where they will do as much construction as possible so that they can make an argument about how much harm will be done to them if the project is stopped. And unfortunately, courts often are sympathetic to that argument. Because economic damages are something that uh, the, the courts accept, whereas when you have uh, intangible damages, it is much harder uh, Particularly when those damages are intangible to the decision makers. They're not right. intangible to the tribes, yes. right? Yeah, it's, it's quite an unfortunate um, limitation of our system. Now, if there's no recourse nationally, there are other... Um, so there's the Inter-American Court of Human Rights and... There's well, there's the, the Inter-American Commission. So there's the Inter-American Commission on Human Rights. So the Inter-American Human Rights System has two bodies. It has the Commission, which is where we were last Friday, right. and, and which is now considering these, this request for precautionary measures. Um, the Commission has a long process that it can go through with a case where it will, once it ex finds a case admissible, it will have a lot of back and forth with the government in question and the petitioners, um, and it will try to get some resolution in that way. If it doesn't get resolution, the commission will make a final finding. And if it finds that there's an ongoing human rights violation, um, in some instances, it can then take the case to the Inter-American Court. It's the commission that takes the case to the court. Unfortunately, the United States hasn't signed the American Human Rights Convention that allows for it to be taken to the court. So the commission is the only inter-American body that can address the United States. Then there are other international human rights institutions. There are these special rapporteurs, which are these special investigators from the United Nations, um, and some of them are already looking at this situation. The special rapporteur on the rights of indigenous peoples has already That's made right. a very um, excoriating statement about the treatment of uh, indigenous peoples and lack of consultation for this pipeline. Yes, yes. The problem is, of course, that um, the in, these international institutions don't have a police force. So when you get a U.S. court decision, if the, the person on the end of the decision who is supposed to change their behavior doesn't do so, they can be fined, they can ultimately be thrown in jail, and we use our police force to do that, right? International law doesn't have that in most instances, and international human rights law doesn't have it. So if an international institution says to the United States, you're violating your human rights obligations, and the U.S. doesn't want to take action to remedy that violation, there really isn't anything that can be done. The strength of the international human rights system is the commitment of the international community, all the nations of the world, to protect human rights. And, and governments generally don't want to be seen as human rights violators. I think most of them don't want to violate human rights. They obviously have conflicting incentives because so often around the world, human rights are violated by projects that have economic value, like the Dakota Access Pipeline. So governments, of course, are um, have many incentives to promote the interests of industry. And, uh, and so sometimes those conflict, the interests of industry and human rights. Governments will often work to, to balance those interests to protect the human rights. What is concerning now is the way that Donald Trump has talked about his relationship to his, frankly, disregard for international law. His apparent 
lack of concern about how the United States will be perceived if we don't comply with international law, which frankly would harm even a Trump administration's interests because when other governments don't trust us to rely, to, to comply with our international obligations, then they don't have an incentive to comply with their own international obligations and we can't rely on that. But certainly with respect to human rights, I'm very concerned that the Trump administration won't really care. Mm. And, and also, it doesn't seem to be flustered by uh, various ethical issues. And one ethical issue here would be that um, the president-elect has a financial incentive for uh, the development of this pipeline. <laughs> and many individuals in that position might want to disassociate themselves from the pipeline, might actually actively want to stop the pipeline because they don't want to be seen as having um, profited financially, but it doesn't seem to be uh, a problem for this particular president-elect. That's right. <laughs> uh, which is quite unfortunate. Um, but there's got to be some positive aspect to all this. We have the stay. Hopefully we will have the environmental impact assessment. And when we do the environmental impact assessment, is there going to be further, um, further assessment of archaeological sites as well? Yes. The, so the, the, it's called an environmental impact statement, but it has to take into account social impacts as well. Um, so that so it will it will consider those things and if it's done right it will be done in full consultation with the tribes now the tribes are are very clear that they don't see a way to have this pipeline in this location um, and in some instances they've said we don't we don't think this pipeline should happen at all and I think you know you you asked the question a moment ago what what will happen in in light of a Trump administration. And I think one thing to point out is that no matter what happens with this pipeline, and it will be a travesty if it goes forward, the tribes have strengthened a growing global movement to recognize the importance of the environment and the need to be much, much more restrained and thoughtful and careful about the activities that we approve as a species that have an impact on the environment that we depend on. Thankfully, our uh, one of the checks and balances of our system is that we have uh, various levels of government and sometimes you need local permits to be able to do something and sometimes you need uh, state acceptance to be able to do something. So just because we have a federal government that believes uh, there's no such thing as climate change and oil is a fantastic uh, thing um, and, you know, everyone should go out and frack as much as they want. Uh, we have other governments that we can petition, uh, our, local, our local government, our state government. Uh, for instance, um, New York has, continues to have a moratorium on fracking, which protects uh, the water source, not just for uh, New Yorkers, but for, I believe, New Jersey, Pennsylvania, it, 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 the whole tri-state um, area. And uh, hopefully other states will also take action and become maybe more emboldened that they now have to fight. Or <laughs> well, we have I mean, seen that. And we've seen, we've seen governors and we've seen attorney generals of states making statements that uh, even here in California, you know, Governor right. Brown has said, we're not, going to, we're not going to put up with what we anticipate coming from the Trump administration. We will oppose those actions. You know, one of the problems, and this Dakota Access Pipeline highlights it, 
with having a federal government that is so in bed with industry is that the reason, the reason we want to have environmental law, for example, at a national level rather than at a local level only, is that local governments tend to be even more influenced by these kinds of infrastructure projects. They're the ones that get often a lot of the, the value. They get the jobs, they get the economic boost that comes with having more people in the area, etc. And so they have less of an incentive often to protect other interests. And so that's why we need a federal government that has a bit more of a distance perspective, ideally, <laughs> and can say we have these, these broader laws and, and no, you, even though you have these incentives, you can't in this instance allow the industry to do what it wants. But now we have a, in, an administration coming in that seems to be right there with those at local governments in wanting to promote the interests of the industry. It is <laughs> quite a shocking shame but uh, I, I do hope that that sometimes when you're shocked at, at an effect that you never thought it could get this bad, that it, it actually brings you out of uh, apathy and out of passivity. In, in, and um, I'm hoping that this is the case, that a, lo a lot of people that thought, oh, well, it's just going to be in a, you know, a Clinton administration and that's not the best, but... Okay, now that they're seeing that, you know, I guess the veil is taken off, um, that people realize that every person counts and, you know, we, we have to go out there and, uh, and all be water protectors, um, right. that we're all affected. And we have a lot of work to do over the next four years, both in terms of preparing for the next presidential election, but more immediately to oppose the actions that we know are going to come from the Trump administration. And, you know, fortunately, we have a lot of people who are committed and have the capacity and the power and the dedication to do that. And the Trump administration can't do everything just with a stroke of a pen. You know, we still, at least for now, have a rule of law in this country that says that the, even the, the executive can't do things arbitrarily. And so if we have well thought out policies and, and regulations and laws that we do have now, if there's an attempt to reverse those, they're going to have to convince a court why it's not arbitrary to do so, why the reasoning that justified those actions in the first place has changed. In many instances, it'll require them to show that the facts have changed and the facts don't change. The facts of climate change haven't changed just because we have a different administration, for example. So we have tools to fight this incoming administration and our organization and many, many others are deeply committed to doing that. Well, Thank you. Thank you for your commitment and for your work. And we need uh, more people to do the same work, more organizations. And I know Earth Justice has been very committed. Uh, Earth Justice is also um, uh, representing the tribes in the U.S. legal action as well as um, this petition. Um, and uh, all donations, I suppose, are welcome and subscriptions. And, uh, and if there are any... Um, petitions that people can sign. I believe there's uh, an email newsletter that is sent out by Earth Justice um, that is then sent out to government representatives. That's right. If you go to earthjustice.org, you can become a member, you can make a donation, you can get on mailing lists and find out about the urgent action appeals and other things you can do to support our work to oppose the kinds of actions that the Trump administration is going to take.
And hopefully some of our listeners will do just that. Well, thank you so much, Martin. I really appreciate that you took the time to discuss this very pertinent issue on gravity. You're welcome. It was a great discussion. I hope you have found this podcast insightful and will join us next time as we explore more issues affecting our environment and human rights at home and around the world. For more materials on this issue, please go to our website, thegravity.fm.